I felt that way. I know that may surprise you, not often. Usually by Sunday, I'm pretty revved up and excited about being here, seeing everyone and opening God's Word and sharing what God's been doing in my own life. That's, that's the ideal Sunday, but there are some Sundays where I don't feel that way. There was a stretch of time when I was not pastoring. I had a different job in the college, and so I was a member of a church, and probably a little easier to get away <laughs> with it. But uh, now back on Sunday mornings, uh, pretty good chance I'm going to be here <laughs> if I'm in town. It, it reminds me of the cartoon I saw one time of, of a woman. She went in to wake up her husband on Sunday morning. He's still in bed, and she said, well, you need to get up. It's gonna be, church is going to be starting pretty soon. And he just kind of rolled over, and she came back in later, and she said, you need to get up. And he said, I don't want to go to church. And she said, you have to. His response was, why? Because you're the pastor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this psalm, Psalm 122, talks about going up to the house of the Lord. And... It's really been a fun week, last few weeks, of studying through this because I've seen things I really haven't seen before about going to the house as what we call the house of the Lord. And I started doing a little jotting down of why I think people don't go to church. (laughs) And I thought, well, that's just my opinion. So I started looking at some of the official polls out there. Uh, George Barna does a lot of these. Other people will even secular polls will give you reasons why people don't go to church. So I, rather than give you um, my list, I'm going to give you the list here. I, there, there are nine of these. They probably overlap in some of them. First of all, church, for many people, is irrelevant. In other words, it really does, it doesn't, they're not thinking about it on Sunday mornings. You know, we're, we're probably driving to church thinking, why isn't everybody going to church? And uh, they're not thinking that way. In fact, that is not even in their thoughts. And, and if they did go, nothing relevant would be said. And so I would say that is probably, for, for most people, if it had some relevance, they would there'd be more interest in being able to come. But I think it's also true, not just for unbelievers, but for believers. They say that the average evangelical in this area... Uh, gospel-believing, born-again Christian will attend regularly once every five Sundays. So I think, well, that's not that often. Now, they, they believe the Bible. They believe in the value of it. They, it. It does have relevance, but probably the relevance is on a, kind of the lower level of other things that are relevant for them on a Sunday. So that's the first response. Church is irrelevant. The second one, leaders are hypocritical and often immoral and materialistic. And you know what? There's not a lot you can say about that. When people say that church is full of hypocrites, I say, well, come on to our church. There's room for one more. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't want to identify us as hypocrites. But in one sense, what I say I believe and how I live are not always exactly the same. How about for you? You know, what I say I believe and what I, how I live, not always the same. But I think people have become disillusioned with spiritual leaders who have been found out, not that they've fallen into immorality, but they've been living in immorality for like 10 years or 20 years. Uh, or they're shamming people with their money. And so there's a lot of that. And in fact, when I, when I hear about these things, I just cringe. 
um, of what people go through. So leaders being hypocritical. Uh, third, people say they feel judged. I feel like when I go to church, I'm, I'm being judged by self-righteous people. Now that may be perception, it may be reality, I don't know, but I've heard that many times people say, I just really don't want to be in a Christian environment because I just feel everybody's looking at me like I don't measure up. Fourth, people have been hurt. You know that happens. It happens with God's people in church. And I'm sure that if you've been in church for any measure of time, you've been hurt, you've been betrayed by friends, people have done things to you, and you have a really hard time getting over it. Um, they also say God is missing in church. <laughs> That's like, you know, why do we come? But it's like God doesn't seem to be there. We have a lot of entertainment, great speaker, great program, but I don't sense the presence of God in this church. Have you ever felt that? Maybe not be a super tangible thing, but you just don't sense God's there. Uh, they also say, at number six, uh, I'm not learning about God. I'm learning about a lot of other things, but I'm not learning about God. Some will say it's too political. Well, yeah. <laughs> have we watched that the last couple years? How it has become, you know, a political position? And, I, and I, I've prayed that God would not allow that. I mean, we stu still believe in certain things. It's not you don't believe in certain things, but let's go to the scriptures rather than having politics be the test case. People get turned off. Um, another one is when they have legitimate doubts and questions about the Bible, they don't feel it's a safe place to ask. Now that that's kind of makes me feel bad, but I think that you know some people doubt God's existence. They doubt the reality of the resurrection. They doubt that you can live by faith. They doubt that God loves them. Did you know most of the world lives that way? And yet they don't feel that going to church is a safe place to say, I'm struggling with that. I have a hard time believing it. Um, I have a very good friend, uh, doesn't uh, live here in Denver anymore, but he used to, <laughs> he used to walk out the door at the end and, and he'd often say, I don't believe that. <laughs> or you don't expect me to believe that. But in time, he came to believe it. And um, I thought, I love your honesty. You know, but we need to have a place where our, our kids need to push back. You know, on all the things we tell them, they need to push back in a safe place. It's okay, let's talk about this. And then finally, the last one is they cannot connect. I don't want to go to church because I, I don't feel like I can connect. I don't have any relationships. People feel with the masses of social media and even the crowds of mega churches, they feel incredibly lonely and isolated. So those are some of the ones you may have felt, um, you may have heard. There, a lot of those are what I have observed too. So... We know why people don't go to church. Why should you go to church? Why, why should you go to church? And obviously, I'm, I'm speaking to everybody that decided to come today, so it's not like they said, for all the people that didn't come to church, pastors, no matter how loud you yell, they're not going to hear you. <laughs> so this, this is to maybe explore why do we go? And I think the answer is found here in Psalm 122. In the very first verse, you know how often I'll tell you when we're looking at a section, there's probably one verse that just kind of really sums it up, and then everything else is an expansion of that idea. And so that, that summary verse is the first one that says, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And we're going to look at this 
this morning in four ways. One, one the meaning. What, what does this mean? Secondly, what is the means to being able to do that? Third, the measure of going to the house of the Lord. In other words, when we worship him, how do we measure success with that? And then the last one is probably the most important question is, what's our motive? Why do you do what you do? Um, I've often said that, that what you do is important, but why you do it is just as important. So let's look at the meaning of this statement. Let us go to the house of the Lord. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. So Psalms in general, um, easy to find. It's right in the middle of your Bible. Now, if you're looking for Hosea or Habakkuk, it's a little harder to say, oh, yeah, people are watching me flip there. But, you know, Psalms, if I say turn to Psalm 122, it just go right to the middle. I read this, and I've shared this with you. I read a Psalm every morning. And the reason, the reason I do is because it's a heart book. It's a heart book. And I know that, that, that that's the most important thing before God. Jesus said this too, your heart is the key. I know this is what God cares about, the way my mind, will, and emotions, my, my thinking process all generate in the heart. And so when you look at Psalms, there are 150 uh, Psalms or chapters. They're divided into five books, and, and you can see this. Half, about half of them, 73, are written by David. He is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. And what what I love about the Psalms is they are so raw, they're so real, they're so transparent. In fact, when I'll read some of these, I'll think, yeah, yeah, that's how I feel. And there are parts of it that are praise to God, and there are parts that are groaning, there are parts of lament and sorrow, and there are parts where, where David is saying, Lord, how long, how long? Have you ever felt that way? So you can really resonate emotionally, mentally, with the fullness of the Psalms. Most of, most of them will start with a, a, a praise or a lament, but always work to an answer. Not all of them, but, but most of them. So they're a combination of prayers, of praise, of worship. Uh, there's songs that are sung. It's, it's kind of like these are, these are prayers to be sung to God and before him. Now, what is unique about Psalm, the, 15, the 15 psalms that we, we begin with Psalm 120 and read through those 15 psalms are called the Psalms of Ascent. And this is what we're talking about ascending to worship this morning. They're called Psalms of Ascent, and four of them are written by David. Other writers have written the others, but the ascending up to Jerusalem. So typically, they would have required times to come worship in Jerusalem. They would come from all over. All over the world, people would come to worship, and Jerusalem was at a high point, so you ascended up to Jerusalem. Even if you're coming from the north, uh, we would typically say I'm going up to Fort Collins, but in Jerusalem you would be always saying up whatever direction you're coming from. And they're also called songs of degrees. So it's, it's, it's almost a degree of elevation, and one, some people think that that's what it's talking about, but it's also degrees of praise and thanksgiving and of focus as they come to the house of the Lord. 
And uh, this one in particular dealing with that. So what is the house of the Lord? And I think in, in making reference here, if David is writing this, we know it's not the temple because Solomon built the temple. But I think that as, as you look back through history, there were structures, there were, were physical structures that were places where people would worship. Now you say, well, I don't need to go to a place to worship God, and that's true. But when you do that as a group, as a, a collection of people, as a community, because the Christian life, we've talked about this, is both individual, in other words, your personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, which is of the utmost importance. But equally important is your fellowship with the community of believers. So you have individual worship and you have collective worship. So first was the tabernacle. Do you remember when uh, Israel was uh, led by Moses out of bondage in Egypt and the presence of God was leading them through the desert? They had a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And, the, and so that represented the presence of the Lord. His presence was there. But he then instructed them to, to build a tabernacle. And, and tabernacle actually means dwelling place. Now, God doesn't just live in the tabernacle. God is, he spans all of time and all of the universe. However, this is how he expressed himself so people could come there and worship. It was different than today, but it was still a place where God wanted to be known and pursued and sought. So after the tabernacle and when, when David passed away, he handed off the plans to his son Solomon to build the temple. The temple is a glorious structure in Jerusalem. And this too was a place that represented God's presence. And so every year people would be coming from all over. Uh, first it was the tabernacle in Jerusalem and then later the temple. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross. We read the, the part about it that the veil in the temple was rent in two. In other words, the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies where, you, where God is symbolized of dwelling is ripped in two. In other words, we have direct access. We have direct access. This is an amazing thought. So this veil is rent. And now we have the church. And the church never was about a building. It was about a body of believers. Well, it's always been about the, the, the community. But now we have them moving from place to place. And so it's a little bit different. The early church did not have buildings for the first 300 years. It wasn't until Constantine and uh, the Roman Empire is uh, kind of making the state religion uh, Christianity, which I don't know that really helped a lot. So you have tabernacle, temple, the church, now the place that we meet, and they would gather in the temple, they gather at synagogues, they would gather in people's homes. And then finally in Revelation 21, we have the, the last uh, structure, and that is the city of God in Revelation 21. So you can read through that a little bit later. Worship is what we were created for. God created you to worship him. He created you for relationship. That's why you exist, for you to enjoy relationship with your creator. And enjoyment is key word. He also created us as a group of believers to enjoy him as well, together. So remember this, that 
God created you for worship. And we've said God is glorious. Last week we talked about this. God is glorious. And when we affirm his glory in responding with saying yes to his glory, we worship him. Worship is loving God back. He expressed his love to us. It's our, it's our expression of obedience, of love, of faith. It's affirming everything that he has given to us. So God is the giver. We are the receivers. We give thanks and praise. And so the idea that we have in, in Psalm 122 is that you, you do that as an individual. And I hope you see that God's word is written to you as an individual. But it's also written to us as a community of how we function together. It's always been that way from the tabernacle to the temple to the church and, and then finally to the city um, that we read about in Revelation. So we read this in verses 3 and 4, the, the one another. It says, It is a city is built as it should be, solidly united, compacted together. In the, in the King James Version, it says, A city that is compacted together. Well, if you've ever seen pictures or been to Jerusalem, it is a very compacted together city. And what that is a picture is the body, you and me, all of us together, fit together as one body, related to one another, working together, loving one another, caring for one another. It's compacted together. This is God's design. And it's an expression of wonderful unity. In fact, in the Psalms, you read constantly about the unity, that you, the same unity that you see with God, the Father, the Spirit, the unity you should see in marriage and family, the same unity you should see in the fellowship of believers. Now, we struggle with that. We all do, but that's God's design. So that's really the meaning of this. The house of the Lord in this context is the tabernacle. It will be the temple. It will be the church. And eventually it will be the city of God. But it is the collective meeting together. So what we're doing today is a 21st century edition of this psalm of praise. So secondly, if we go from meeting to the means, how do I worship God? How do I gain access to this? How, you say, well, there's a door. Um, we always have someone out there watching the door, uh, just in case in the back, and uh, we're thankful for that. But how do you gain access into this community, this fellowship? And we're talking about access to God. Because at, at, at creation, Adam and Eve had access to God. In other words, he created Adam, created Eve, brought them together in marriage, and there was perfect union, harmony, fellowship with God. They would talk together. Okay, Then sin enters into the world. In Genesis chapter 3, you have 1 and 2 creation. And chapter 3, I mean, we're only three chapters in, and we've got a disaster. <laughs> but let me tell you what. People say, well, how could God let that happen? How could it get into three chapters and God let that happen? Well, God, as I've said many times, God, in order to have a, a reciprocal, real relationship of love, has to give you free will. He can't make you a robot and have a real loving relationship. So the moment he gives you free will, there is the option for you to reject it. And that's what all of us have done. 
But what I love about chapter 3 of Genesis is that in, in verse 15, we immediately see God has a plan of redemption. So yes, you blew it, but right after that, he says, I have a plan. And the access, which we're going to see unfold through all of Scripture, I call it the red, the scarlet thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation, is Jesus Christ. That's why you'll hear from us over and over again, Jesus is the way. He's the only way. Now that bothers a lot of people, but it is, it is a way the truth and the life, it is by grace through faith. It is not by your works. It is not by your doings. It is not by you living a good life. It is not by you checking boxes. It is not by you getting baptized or being a member of the church. It is by you putting your faith and trust in the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. To me, it is so beautiful. Um, and, and we see really in this from chapter 3, and you know when you, when you get into... Um, Exodus and Leviticus, you, sometimes you, you're reading through all these sacrifices and you're going, oh, man, that's pretty bloody. I mean, all these lambs and goats and bulls and all those bloody sacrifices. <clears throat> what that is, is atonement. The blood, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Doctors will tell you that. Blood is representative of life. So we're dead in our sins. And so atonement needs to be made for our sin. In other words, forgiveness. You have sinned, I have sinned, we all have sinned. And God is offering forgiveness, atonement. So in the Old Testament, the sacrifice of sheep and, and goats and bulls is a picture. The blood is a picture of the coming Messiah, who is, Jesus is different in that he is the perfect God-man who is a substitute for you. Sheep won't do it. Goats won't do it. Well, maybe for some of you. Um, Bulls won't do it. The only thing that can be a perfect substitute for you is a man who is perfect, and that is Jesus. So he is the way. This is why when we talk about the mean, how do, how do I worship God? How do I come and enjoy his presence? How do I sing praises to him and, and, and in, a, in my personal life come up to Jerusalem, come up to the house of God? I come boldly because of Jesus washed my sins away with his blood. He's given to me the gift of eternal life. I come with thanksgiving and praise. I don't come with guilt and shame. And folks, that's the way we all come. We all come. You know, this church is filled with sinners who have been washed in the blood of Jesus. I've, I've had so many people say to me, I don't know if I'd fit into the church there because you don't know my past. I said, you have no idea what our people have been through. <clears throat> and how good God is and how forgiving he is. And so it's one thing to praise and thank God, but when we can do that together, when we can just kind of do that together, it's special. It is really, really special that we get to do this on Sunday. So the means is Christ. Uh, Jesus, in fact, if you look at um, verse 6, uh, it, it says the thrones of judgment and the house of David. Now, the thrones of judgment and the house of David, David is, is, a, is a picture of a, what we call messianic, messianic message. In other words, Jesus, who is the promised one, Messiah, is the Redeemer. And so we're reading about the Messiah here in Psalm 122. Sometimes it's, it's a little bit 
hard to see that, but once you get to the New Testament, you look back, aha, this is messianic. This is Christ, and he talks about the thrones of judgment, which is really the scriptures, the, the words of God. And so the means, the word of God, tells us about Christ. Does that make sense? So Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. His word communicates that, tells us of the Messiah. And so because of that, that is the means that we have to worship. It's always Jesus, always Jesus. And I'll tell you what, if the only person you meet when you come to our church is Jesus, you're good. <laughs> so that's the means. Thirdly, we look at the measure. How do we measure the success of our worship? How, how, how can we look at Valley Community Church, and we're just a small, when I say a, a drop in the ocean of what God's doing in the world. We're just a small group of believers, but not insignificant. So how do we measure the success of our worship? First, as an individual, how would you measure your personal worship? whether or not it's successful or not. Good question to ask. And then secondly, as we do that together, how, how would we measure our worship experience each Sunday as being successful? Well, how does the rest of the world measure success? <laughs> usually, yeah, money, numbers, numbers, dollars, statistics, and usually immediately what's visible. And I would say this, that the same way people measure sports and money and success in business is the same way many measure the success of a church. I've, I've heard people say, wow, that church is just great church. And I'll say, well, why? And they'll tell me all the reasons, and they're all because, well, they've got 10,000 people or they've got a great pastor, speaker, um, who we later find out is in living in immorality. Um, you know, you, you go through all, all of these measurables, I think, can be flawed. It's very important how we measure. We need to measure the way God measures. You need to do that personally in your life, and we need to do that as a church. And it's not as easy <laughs> as just counting the offering. You know, we could say, well, we counted the offering, we had a great offering, we got big attendance, and most of we baptized this many people. We sent 25 missionaries, and God be up in heaven saying, I'm not pleased. And you know how I know that? Because all through the prophets, he's telling Isaiah and Jeremiah that. He says, you do this, 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 and I am not pleased. What's he looking for? And, and there are two passages that you probably read in your daily reading as you're reading through the Bible this year. One of them is back a little bit, 1 Samuel 16, 7, where here's what the Lord says. He says, God does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Wow, do you hear Jesus saying the same thing? So in other words, I can have everything on the outside looking great. And, and we are so good at that today, aren't we? I mean, it, 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 in our society, we are really good at image management. But he says, I am looking at your heart. Whew. And God knows our hearts. In, in the 
prophet Micah chapter 6. This is one you probably read. He has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, that's a response to him rebuking them for saying, you sacrifice all these bulls, you have all these sheep, you do all these things, you do, you know, it's like, it's a big show. It's a big show. He said, but what I want is for you to do the right thing, to love mercy and to walk humbly with me. That's what I want. That's what God wants for you, and that's what God wants for me. And that's how God measures and you know something, sometimes you have to, my son, you know, Reed is out in Lodi, California now pastoring. And he said, Dad, you know, some of the guys I went to seminary with, they're out there and they're writing up there. We had 200 people and we did this and we just bought this and we just had this program. And I said, I said, son, <laughs> you know what God is pleased with. Don't get caught up. And he knows this. I mean, we have these guys, don't get caught up in the world's way of measuring things. God is the one who measures, and you be sure you're doing what pleases him. And that's what we're, we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians, living to God's glory, is live your life for his pleasure. And when you live your life for his pleasure, it is coming up to Jerusalem, praising him. It is thanking him. It's not telling everybody else what you did. So what makes a healthy church? What makes a healthy church? And I think there are many, many passages we could go to uh, because that's our current 21st century context of the house of the Lord. Um, by the way, we're renting this place, <laughs> but it belongs to God as everything else does. So I like to think of it that way. You know what? This place belongs to God. And we're worshiping him here. So let me just read this to you. Um, this is from Acts 2, and it, it, it's a description so it's not really like, do this, do this, do it. It's a description of a healthy church. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the, the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed proceeds to all as they had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So <clears throat> I'm going to do this real quickly, but it, it, and I'm not, I didn't write them down for you. What does it take to have a healthy church? Two or three. Two or three. Say, that's not a mega church. It is. Because every life has value. How do I know that? Well, look at verse, verse 1. He says, you know, it says, I. He begins it by saying, I was glad. And then he says, let us. So there's singular and there's plural. Remember I talked about that? So you are part, you should be part of a body of believers. If you haven't found one, I, and it may not be valley, but I pray that you be part of that. How many do you need? Two or three. You, are you telling me you can have two or three people and have a church? Yes, and a healthy one. Matthew 18, 
He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So, you know, if two of you get together, Jesus says, I'm there with you. That's amazing, isn't it? So, the number can be very small. Secondly, what is happening in this church is praise, thanksgiving, and worship. Verse 1 says they rejoiced. They're rejoicing. So part of a healthy church is giving thanks to God for what he's done, praise for who he is, and worshiping together. And we're going to talk about all, all of it. Like people will say, well, um, first we're going to have worship and then preaching. It's all worship. It's all worship. The giving, the fellowship, all of it is rightly related to God and rightly related to one another. This is why we're created. Relationship, vertically, horizontally, is all worship. And so singing, praising, singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in our hearts to the Lord, Colossians chapter 3. So they mention that here, they rejoice. Number three, much prayer. Not just a nod to God, much prayer. How many times do you read, they prayed all night? Why do you think there were such extraordinary things happening in the New Testament? Why do you, why do you think? Because God hears and answers prayer. I'll tell you what, the last few months, I have seen God answer prayer. He hasn't answered all the prayers I've prayed, but he's, he's answered a lot that we have prayed together. I mean, just a lot of prayers, hasn't he? <clears throat> and the first thing, the enduring thing, the last thing you need to do, the most power, and you've heard me say this many times, I'll keep saying it, the most effective thing you can do about anything is to pray. Your kids, your marriage, your work, your health, your neighbors, your future, why is it the last resort? You know, first we want to wear ourselves out trying to fix it. <laughs> prayer, much prayer, verse 6. Praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And then preaching and teaching the word. Um, every time you find in the Old Testament, tabernacle, the temple, the synagogues, the church, you find that the, the word of God is central. It is central. And it, God's word is not just true and inerrant and infallible. It, it relates. It, it, is, it is relevant. And it is helpful in everything that we do, every part of the scripture. One of the things people ask me, they say one of the most difficult things you can do is speak in public. And I still get nervous when I speak in public. But I tell you the difference is when I, when I can get up and say, this is what God says. <laughs> Ignore what I say. This is what God says. I mean, this, this book is amazing. And Scripture, I think any healthy church, the Word of God is central. It's not peripheral. And that's why I love going through like the, the um, First Corinthians. We're going, going through the book. I think it's just, it's, I love doing that. And not just, you know, one verse a Sunday. Now, I'm not opposed to having a verse a day or turning to a verse or like some people say, well, let's see, what shall we read today? And you go like this and um, 
pick a verse. I, I, I feel like there needs to be a serious focus on Scripture for us to be a healthy church. Um, and not only to read it and study it, but to obey it. Scripture, scripture is there. Then the observing of the ordinances. Verse 4 talks us about the ordinances of Israel. Israel had things that they did. An ordinance would be something, a practice or a habit. We have two in the church. One is the Lord's Supper. We had that last week where we remember what he did for us. With what we call communion or the Eucharist. And we celebrate. He died for our sins. Uh, he shed his blood. He gave his body for us. Okay, and then baptism. And baptism is also a celebration of this person just put their faith in Christ and they're telling everybody about it. And, and so the church celebrates when someone comes to faith in Christ by baptism. It's a picture of identifying with Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. So you get that picture? Uh, baptism is always believer's baptism. You never find babies being baptized um, in the Bible. And even though I was baptized as a baby, so a lot of you were, but you never find any babies getting baptized. It's always believers who are identifying that they put their faith in Christ and, and they're buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of resurrection. And then after that, <laughs> we celebrate. You know, new life. That's part of it. Celebrate Lord's Supper and communion. Number six, we care for one another. We care for one another. This is found in verse 8. It says, my brothers and friends, peace be in you. One of the things I love about Valley, and I've never experienced it at any other church I've been in, is how much this church, the people love each other. Typically, I'm thinking of strategic ways to make sure everybody's taken care of, but by the time I get there to make up a plan, it's already, people are already taking care of each other. I've never been in a, now I may not speak of you, you may say, I feel left out if you do, I'm sorry, but I have never seen a church that just genuinely loves each other like this church. In verse 9, he says, I will pursue your prosperity. And that word prosperity there doesn't mean that you, you're a millionaire. It means that you're just at peace. You're just at ease. And I think this, that when you think about caring for one another, last, last week, or was it two weeks ago, Cherith Hunt was here. She's, she's a member of our church. God called to go to Africa. Zambia, deaf ministry, and she came back with a need. Remember we said it was a $6,000 need and, if, and really a $14,000 need. And I was thinking, man, our, our small church, I don't know if we can do that. I said, man, it would be great if we could do 6000 Well, as of this morning, I don't know what the current total is now, but it's over fourteen. We went over fourteen. Um, and the regular giving didn't fall off at all. So our, our regular giving that we need to just function as a church actually went up. And then Cherith, and I, and I told Cherith, I said, what do you think that tells you? She said, people love me. <laughs> they believe in what I'm doing. And isn't that, isn't that wonderful? I mean, I'm thinking that's a healthy church. Now, most offering and giving campaigns that I've been a part of uh, and I have led, and I'm not saying these are wrong, or building buildings. And, you know, we're going to build a building or we're going to do this. And uh, I'd like to have a building. You know what? It's nice to have our own building here. Um, but I tell you, in light of eternity, what, what Cherith is doing and what people are doing, 
is so much more important. That's why I think people just get excited about that. And, and so, so giving, financial giving, is a part of our just thanks to God. And it should be fun. Giving should be fun. I think last two weeks ago, giving was fun, wasn't it? And then we go, I got three more real quickly. These kind of go together. Sharing the gospel, multiplying disciples, and sending missionaries. So a healthy church is sharing the gospel. Healthy church is multiplying disciples. In other words, teaching people everything and then sending out missionaries like we did with Cherith. So you can do that. Are you with me, folks? With two or three people. All that you can do with two or three people. Without a crowd, without a building, without a praise band, and without a pastor. <laughs> you know, you'd like to have some of those things later on. You'd like to have elders and deacons and pastors and music and a piano player. And my son in California doesn't have anybody to lead music. <laughs> so you can do this healthy church with two or three people. I love this. <laughs> So finally, <clears throat> we're going to look at the motive, and, and this comes down to the why, and then, and then we'll wrap it up. Why do we do what we do? Why do we come to church? Why do we worship? Now, the first reason I came up with is tradition. <laughs> we know the song, right? Tradition. It's a habit. Some of you have got into a habit, and you don't even think about, we go to church, it's tradition. Well, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> Some come over an overwhelming sense of guilt, if they don't, fear or shame or social pressure. Those are not good. Some may come to church because they feel a sense of self-righteousness. If I go to church, I'm more spiritual. And I feel good about me. Not good. Some go to church out of a pure sense of self-indulgence. I wonder if I like the music, I like the preacher, I like the program. I mean, everything is about me. I'm going there because of what it does for me. Or we can be motivated by simple obedience, which is not bad. In fact, in Hebrews 10.25, it says, do not forsake. This is a very clear command. Don't forsake assembling together. So that's what, that's what Jesus tells you. Be faithful. Now, let me just make a little bit of pause. Like, oh, man, next time I miss, Matt's going to say, saying, what, are, what are you doing? <laughs> now, folks, you're here. Okay, so I'm, this is not, I love it when you get on vacation. I love it when you go do other things. This, to me, is not a checkbox thing. But I, I would, generally, I would say this, that, that it is your habit. It is your pattern. It is the frequency of your life to come to the house of God rejoicing and in worship collectively. That is a pattern of your life. Now, how you navigate through the finer parts of that, um, I can't tell you. Um, I can tell you what I've worked through, but I think there's levels of practicality. You know, we're, we're going to go on vacation here coming up in August, and uh, there might be a church uh, or it might be a Sunday where I'm, I'm not in church. Um, so th this is not, I don't, I don't want you to misunderstand this. However, I do want you to ask yourself the question, is that a high priority in my life? In other words, there are some things that will come up. Do I make this something that is of great value, not only to me personally, but to the body? Because I think that's, and only you can answer that question.
but it should be the consistent, regular habit of God's people. So, I come to the last and only, to me, it's good if you come out of obedience. I know God told me to, so I'm going to go to church. And probably that pastor in bed when his wife is telling him, you need to go to church. He probably just, he's not feeling it. (laughs) He needs to go. But the greatest motive is joy and delight in our God. A love for God. A love, and, and stay with me, and I'm done here, okay? May God put this in our hearts that we come to the house of the Lord with a love for Him, a love for His people, a love for the songs we sing, a love for the prayers that we can offer to Him, a love for His word we can hear and obey, a love to be able to give to needs that are there and the joys that we can celebrate together. And it is a refreshment. It is a refreshment to the soul. It encourages you. It encourages me. It delights the heart of God. That is the best way to worship. Now, I have one caveat here. But what about, Matt, when I'm not feeling it? (laughs) Because I tell you what, I know all that. I'm hearing all that. I see all of you nodding your heads on all that. We come because we delight in God. There are going to be some Sunday mornings that are not delightful. So here's what one quote that I read. A writer said this, We live in the age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in, in doing it. So in other words, you think, well, I don't feel like going, and, and if I do go, I'm just being a hypocrite. <laughs> okay, that's the way people process that and he says but the wisdom of God says something different that we can act we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting did you follow that acting in obedience will help direct our feelings but our feelings will not help direct right actions Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. So your, your worship precedes this, the obedience precedes this. When we obey the command to praise God and worship, our deep essential need to be in relationship with God is nurtured. My dad used to say it to me this way. He says, when you can't see your way clear, obey your way clear. So... Have you ever found that it's like, it's like going to the gym? I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to go exercise today. And you do anything, I feel, I feel so much better. It's like going to church too. You know, I don't feel like going today. But God begins to nurture in those things. So we conclude with this. The, the, I want you to see in this psalm the I, I rejoice, and the us. For us together as we go to the house of the Lord. And I'll leave you with this statement. It's just the first verse. I rejoiced. With those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Isn't it good to be here? And my prayer is this, that the smile of God, the smile of God will be upon you and will be upon this church. It's all that matters. It's all that matters. And I believe we have that and we ought to give thanks for that and continue to develop that in the lives of our kids. Father, thank you for your word. And just uh, what, a, what a joy 
to, to sing, to pray, to give, to hear your words, to be with one another. And so, Lord, just as in days of old, as they were ascending to Jerusalem, to the house of the Lord, as we came today, may we do it with the right motive, uh, because we just love you, Lord. We love you, and we love one another, and we love what you're doing. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.